You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Carnage in the bond market continued today, triggering a sell-off in tech, with the Nasdaq down 2.5%, one of the 10 worst days of the index since July. Later, I'll be speaking to lithium bull Howard Klein about the critical role that lithium plays in electric vehicles, and about how he's managing positions in stocks that are up as much as 1,000%. But first, bond yields are rising like a hot air balloon. Is the Fed going to lose control of the yield curve? That is the trillion-dollar question. And who better to make sense of it all than Lynn Alden? Lynn, welcome back to The Daily Briefing. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Of course. So uh, a lot of action in the market today that I want to get into. So the 10-year uh, continued to rise. Yields continue to rise. Um, the 10-year is up seven basis points. It's now at 1.46%. Uh, and accordingly, the NASDAQ is down almost 2%. We're seeing a lot of carnage in those growthy names, DocuSign, Zoom, Peloton, PayPal, PayPal, excuse me, all down over 5% today. Um, how are you thinking about all of this uh, market action? Yeah, so basically what we're seeing play out is what I wrote about in my February newsletter. And so back on February 21st, I published a, a piece talking about the, the, how this rising yield situation could impact, uh, you know, kind of different sectors. And it kind of started with a flow chart, right? So, uh, you know, if, if you get uh, a continued stimulus and things like that, you're looking at, at kind of continued reflation or uh, the potential for outright inflation. On the other hand, if they were to cut off stimulus or the talks were to fall through, uh, you could kind of uh, uh, cut that uh, inflation theme off uh, prematurely. Uh, and so basically the flow chart started with, you know, assuming that they're going to continue with stimulus, we move on to the next round. And then the thing is, okay, so if, if we get more stimulus, uh, we get rising inflation expectations, you should start to see uh, the longer end of the curve start to move up because, you know, for, for the past year, they've been submerged below the the, the actual and expected inflation rate. And so even even if you don't get high inflation, it would be natural for the long end of the curve to move up and, and go back towards even zero yields, let alone positive real yields. Uh, and so we're starting to see that play out. And then from there, it really is going to come down to uh, what the uh, monetary policymakers at the Fed uh, do about this. And so if they don't intervene very heavily, uh, then we're likely to continue to get steepening yield curve. Uh, and therefore, you'd want to be uh, long things like banks, for example, and, and some of the other value plays uh, and or and short treasuries, if you want to play it like that. On the other hand, if you expect the Fed to kind of come in and intervene uh, and either do an operation twist where they might sell some of their T-bills and buy some T-notes and T-bonds, uh, you know, or outright yield curve control in the more extreme sense, uh, then that can, uh, you know, basically compress the long end of the curve and and, and drive those Real yields more, uh, you know, further back in a negative territory. And so far, we're seeing that leg play out with the with the banks doing quite well, value outperforming growth, uh, and uh, a sell off in treasuries. Mm -hmm. uh, just for the people at home, so that operation twist is selling short the Fed when the Fed sells short term bonds and buys long term bonds to sort of restore order to that yield curve that has uh, steepened so much. Uh, Lynn, I want to ask you about uh, the, the rotation into cyclical names. Banks are obviously cyclical. They do well when rates rise because they make money from, from rates. Um, but energy companies as well, uh, 
airlines, you know, those cyclicals, I haven't heard you uh, talk as positively about them. But if the market is pricing in robust growth, uh, you know, isn't why is now not the time to, to plow into those, uh, you know, those value cyclical names? Yeah, so I've, I, I've kind of selected with my cyclicals. And so, for example, I have been talking about energy for a while uh, and some overweight energy. Uh, and because, you know, if you look back in the summer of 2020, I mean, that was a really bombed out sector. Uh, we, we had the infamous uh, you know, negative oil print uh, in the spring. And then therefore, you know, people called uninvestable, uh, just, you know, sentiment couldn't be worse. We also uh, co-mingled the narrative of, of you know, uh, Tesla and solar and, and kind of the idea that, that oil is out of here. Uh, and so, but I, I thought that whole thing was really overdone. And so I've been long energy and there are a couple of different ways to do it. And so I, I prefer to focus on the high quality end of the cyclical uh, uh, trade. And so we often think of, you know, different factors. Like if you think of quality, you generally think of uncyclical companies. Uh, but even in the cyclical space, there's a spectrum there, right? So for example, you can have an energy company that is virtually never free cash flow positive, you know, barely has a, you know, even when oil's doing okay, it's, it's, it's having a rough time, uh, let alone when oil's in a bear market. And, but if you were to get an uptick in oil, that stock could really skyrocket. But that's not really the, the place I'm playing in. I'm focusing on the ones with, with you know, low cost production, strong balance sheets, the one that can get through multiple bull and bear cycles. And so I've been overweight some of those higher quality energy names, such as some of the transporters uh, and some of the producers. Uh, I haven't really been touching the, the airline stocks, although I have been long airports. Uh, it's kind of a wider moat way to play uh, a similar theme. Uh, and I've also been uh, reasonably long industrials, uh, but really the, the financials and the energy have been some of the more cyclical plays, along with uh, broader commodities like copper and, and, and some of those other trades. Mm. Lynn, I know that you, uh, you, you like these value stocks and for, for cyclical reasons, because you expect uh, growth to pick up alongside with inflation. And you've been right about that, by the way, that you, you uh, go into those cyclical names. But I, I do know that you also like your tech stocks every now and then. Um, Alibaba comes to mind. Um, how are you thinking about managing that position where you think, OK, it's a good company. I like it. It's got growth prospects. But if all of its value is, is based in the future and rates are rising, the future isn't worth what it used to be. You know, how are you how are you thinking about your exposure to, to tech? Uh, so my overall approach with that area is growth at a reasonable price. Uh, so it's kind of that midpoint between you know, unprofitable hyper growth stocks. I think a lot of those are very overdone. I've been avoiding that space. On the other hand, uh, you can get companies where if you look at their, their peg ratio, their price to earnings to growth ratio, that's actually quite reasonable. And because, you know, the overall threat to the, the really kind of hyper growth stocks is that they, they were bid up to extraordinarily high valuations, often 30, 40, 50 times sales. Uh, in order to justify those valuations, you need extremely high growth the next decade and you also need a very, very low discount rate to basically justify those valuations. And so when you get a, a rise in yields, uh, you know, the, basically the fair value calculations uh, put a lot more pressure on those really expensive growth stocks than they do, uh, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, the value stocks uh, with, you know, profitable growth stocks being somewhere in the middle. Uh, and so I've been overweight the value side uh, and, and, you know, focusing on, on that side of it. Uh, but I still am long certain growth at a reasonable price name. So, for example, I think, uh, you know, Alibaba, Tencent, JD out of China uh, still look OK. Uh, in the United States, I still uh, have a you know, small position of Microsoft, uh, Amazon. Uh, and so I haven't fully abandoned that side of my portfolio. But, for example, I have a, a lower position in those compared to the S&P 500, which is quite concentrated in those very uh, you know, large mega cap names. 
And so that combination of excluding those really uh, unprofitable, high-valued companies and then being underweight some of those uh, heavyweights uh, really gives the portfolio more of a, a slant towards that, that value side without you know, fully getting out of the growth at a reasonable price space. Lynn, as we approach a close, um, how are you thinking about the bond market going forward? Obviously, we've had this uh, tremendous uh, sell-off in bonds, resulting in yields spiking. Uh, last week, there was a, 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 a seven-year uh, bond sale of over $60 billion, and the marginal buyer was nowhere to be found, and it, it was really was chaos. Um, how, how are you thinking about that going forward? I think you know next week and the week after, we have some... Uh, 10-year bond sales, some 30-year bond sales. Do you think that the marginal buyer is going to be there, or do you think that you know, yields will continue to spike up like they have over the past two weeks and like we saw today? So a week or two is hard to say. I don't really focus on the nuances of that particular time frame. But over the longer run, I'm still in kind of the bond bear camp, uh, either from a real perspective or a nominal perspective. And so uh, my base case would be a continued rise in, in yields unless the Fed takes more drastic actions to try to cap the long end of the curve at which case it could prevent uh, you know, further nominal losses in bonds, uh, but it's not a place I'd want to have in terms of purchasing power, in terms of real returns. I'd still rather be in some of these other types of assets. And so we have a couple of dates to watch. I mean, the, the big one's going to be the FOMC meeting uh, to see if they take any action or if they continue to let this play out. My overall base case uh, for a while now is that the Fed basically is going to fish for a pain point. And so they're going to you know, let let yields uh, partially do what they do, given, of course, the the fact that they are still assisting it with you know eighty billion dollars a month in purchases. But besides that, uh, you know, uh, basically training wheels, they're saying, okay, we're going to see what's going to happen and and let the market find pain points. And if things get too disorderly, you know, they they step in at some some degree. And we saw a taste of that last week. And then the the question is, you know, will we continue to have disorderly uh, periods like that, or will the the rise be more gradual? And allow the Fed to kind of, you know, uh, stand back and and just kind of, you know, talk it down essentially. Final question, Lynn. Two um, percent is that number is being thrown around as the level above which the Fed can just simply not tolerate it, and it will it will intervene. Um, what do you think of that uh, bogey? Obviously, no one knows where it really is, but do you think that's it's accurate in giving it a rough sense of once it passes that threshold, uh, the Fed is going to do everything it takes to, to uh, keep yields down. And you know, I'm also thinking not just of uh, Operation Twist or, or, or uh, yield curve control, but also um, you know what Zoltan uh, Pazar said today about um, you know extending uh, the emergency measures, which I think currently expire on, in March. Yeah, so I think it's overall, um, you know, I don't necessarily think they're going to focus on a specific price level uh, or yield level, I should say. I think that's a reasonable kind of approximation of where they might start to intervene more. Uh, but for, for you know, in my view, it's less about the number and more about where it starts causing pain points in the market. So for the treasury market to become disorderly, illiquid, uh, th those are the types of things I'd look at more about raising my probability for Fed intervention. Uh, and so I, my base case is they'll probably extend the SLR uh, rules change, uh, you know, that, that allows banks to essentially hold more treasuries, uh, and that you know the next you know high probability would you know possibly be an operational twist, operation twist. And the reason there is because you ironically have a problem on both ends of the curve. On the on the short end of the curve, you actually have a shortage of T bills, and you know compared to the amount of liquidity in the system. On the other end of the, the spectrum, you have you know these rising yields putting some pressure on, uh, you know, some of these other uh, parts of the market. And so they could potentially just, you know, sell some T-bills, buy some T-bonds, T-notes, basically solve or at least, you know, slow down uh, both problems uh, at the same time. But we'll see how proactive they end up being 
or whether or not they let the market just continue to, to find pain points and then put out fires as they come. Generally, uh, my base case is that the Fed is a more reactive organization, and therefore, rather than trying to proactively get ahead of things, uh, they'll let the market poke around and, and, and basically tell them what they have to do. That's a very compelling framework. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, Lynn, thanks so much. Where can people find you on, on Twitter as well as, as on your website? Uh, so I'm at lynnalden.com and active on Twitter uh, at lynnaldencontact. Thanks for having me. Of course, Lynn. Talk to you soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Howard, welcome to the Daily Briefing. How are you doing? Very well, Jack. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. So you've been on with Ed, um, and you've been very bullish on lithium stocks. And since then, they have been on quite a run. So you know, you come back to Real Vision sort of with us rolling out a red carpet. Um, so the, like, the, the lithium space has been uh, on fire. Um, you know, in the wake of the the EV uh, frenzy and the, the flurry of, of SPACs that are going on. So you know, the wheels are really turning in that space. What's your current outlook on uh, the lithium space? Well, the lithium equity space is large. There's lots of uh, investment opportunities in it, uh, and it's generally very positive because uh, the prices of lithium have only started rising a few months ago, and they're still, even though they've gone up in some cases 50, 100%, if it's lithium carbonate, lithium hydroxide, or, or precursor material spodumene, they're still below what is widely uh, acknowledged to be the incentive price to expand capacity in a meaningful way. And uh, the demand for lithium, as we've talked about before, it, it just keeps increasing. Albemarle, the largest lithium producer in the world, in their fourth quarter results uh, a week or two ago, upgraded their 2025 forecast to 1.14 million tons of you know, lithium carbonate equivalent. That number was 900,000 to a million prior to that. And a year prior to that, it was lower. It was like 700 or 800. So every year, the demand forecasts for lithium are increasing in a nearer term time frame. And 2025 is only four years away. The market for lithium last year was only about 350,000 tons. So that's a tripling of lithium supply in four years. And then if you look out to 2030, it needs to double again from that 1.1, you know, 4 million. So another million tons. And this is without taking into account, you know, Elon Musk and Tesla's very aggressive, you know, three terawatt hour, you know, forecast for battery uh, capacity for Tesla alone. Uh, so the outlook is ridiculously strong. For it is for um, lithium demand because lithium is such a small industry. It's only been about a three or four billion dollar industry. Not a lot of tons compared to, you know, the oil industry, iron ore, copper, nickel. All of those industries are much bigger than lithium. So it's the the, the small base that is growing so rapidly. Um, you know, twenty percent per year, as far as the eye can see, that is making the backdrop for lithium to be uh, you know, very 
exciting sector. And the prices, which were on a downward trajectory the last two and a half years, have started rising as demand, as inventories have depleted, and as Europe in particular has, uh, and and China following, um, have implemented policies that are are very you know pro EV, and the the numbers coming in on a monthly basis from Europe in various countries, UK, Germany, etc., are you know, 15, 20% EV penetration rates. And you've had recently more and more major auto companies are setting targets for the elimination of internal combustion engine vehicles. So I think Jaguar said 2025, they're no longer going to make internal combustion engine cars. Uh, you know, Volvo, Ford, um, GM, I forget exactly the, the dates, but 2025, 2030, I mean, by 2035, the latest, the elimination of the internal combustion engine car in a very short period of time. That's a huge amount of batteries that are needed, and all of those batteries require lithium. Howard, with regards to uh, Albemarle, it's, it's, as you say, the, the largest lithium company, but uh, they're diversified. They've got, I think, three sectors. In addition to lithium, they've got catalysts and, and then bro, um, bromines. Um, what can you tell me about the sort of pure lithium plays? You mentioned uh, Piedmont, but then I think you also have your eye on uh, Livevent, which uh, just recently reported earnings as well. Uh, what, what do you make? What's your outlook on Piedmont and Livevent? Okay, the last time I spoke with Ed, I, I said um, Livevent, you know, in my opinion, was a hold, you know, and, and Albemarle was a buy and Piedmont was a buy. I suggested Piedmont could be a $100 stock. I suggested Albemarle could be a a two hundred dollars stock. So Albemarle is at one fifty five. Piedmont's actually close to a hundred already, and Livent has kind of like treaded water. So I'm still sticking to all of that guidance. Um, Livent's uh, quarter was not great. They had uh, six million in in EBITDA. Um, they haven't. Their main asset is in Argentina, and they don't have any volume growth in the short term. They only have price growth. And uh, I, I think the company is reasonably well managed, but their investments, they have to make some significant investments. I also think they're likely to raise equity. Uh, Albemarle, since I spoke to Ed, did raise $1.5 billion to you know, shore up their balance sheet, reduce debt, but also invest in very near term you know, growth that they have. And SQM, another company I haven't mentioned before, but they raised or are are raising $1.1 billion. The equity capital raising business, um, uh, I keep track of all this, I think $4.4 billion has been raised in just equity alone across you know 20 or 30 different lithium companies since last August. So um, I'm not super bullish on the outlook. I think the valuation of lithium, I'm sorry, of, um, of Livent r- remains high. Uh, I think Albemarle should is, is still a buy. I mean, the stock hasn't moved that much, and they have the best assets and the best. They have volume and price growth. Piedmont has performed spectacularly well, and um, I I believe people are starting to recognize it. it's a billion market cap now. It's a pre-production company, but if you compare it to uh, EV themed SPAC companies, right? And like MP Materials, which is a rare earths company, has like a 7 billion market cap for a 
hard rock rare earths mine in California. Here you have a hard rock um, lithium mine in North Carolina. I think you know you could see a trajectory that it, it could easily grow into MP materials valuation um, you know, over the next several years. So I think the market's starting to understand that Piedmont is not just a project, but it's a business. Um, it's not just a one asset company. Since we've spoken uh, last time, they actually made a small investment um, for $12 million in a, in a Quebec lithium mine where they got 40% of the economics. So they're implementing their strategy of not just their North Carolina project, but potentially being a consolidator and multi-mine um, and multi-chemical uh, plant producer. So the market believes Piedmont's going to be a 20,000-ton producer, but they could be, you know, a 100,000-ton producer with a, you know, a 7- to 10-year view. So I like, continue to like Piedmont as a, a, a long-term uh, and medium-term investment. Uh, again, the stock has risen, you know, a lot, uh, but it has scarcity value as uh, the only American, they're re-domiciling. It's an Australian listed company with a, uh, a USADR, but they're now re-domiciling to be a hundred percent American company. It'll be the only a hundred percent, you know, uh, uh, owned and, and listed developer uh, in lithium. This will enable it to join indexes like the, the Russell 2000 and the like. And bear in mind, just uh, I want to say, because other people have commented the past, we are an advisor to Piedmont. I'm an investor in Piedmont. I've uh, been involved with the company for some, you know, four years from 10 million market cap now to, to, to a billion. But I, I continue to be involved with the company. So, you know, do your own research and uh, um, just wanted to make that the disclosure. Thanks, Howard. You uh, mentioned MP materials, and that makes me think about this uh, rating issue. Does do, do uh, these rare earth stocks, these these lithium uh, equities, these miners, do they trade, Howard, as commodities or do they trade as electric vehicle stocks? And I ask because you know everyone now is talking about rising interest rates and rising interest rates are kind of kryptonite to growth stocks and particularly electric vehicle stocks, which are epitomes of, of growth stocks. Um, so you know if interest rates rise uh, and they're trading like EV stocks, that perhaps could be negative for these lithium companies. However, if they trade like a commodity stock, like let's say an oil stock that's, that's really focused on reflation and growth, and that you know reflation and growth will be a tailwind, uh, then uh, rising interest rates will be good. So uh, uh, Howard, how do you see the lithium sector trading uh, relative to interest rates? That's a very interesting question. So Albemarle stock has risen uh, significantly because I believe people are looking beyond just next year's earnings and they've started to look to 2025 in the same way that these EV SPACs are being valued on their 2024-2025 EBITDA. So we also, we need to, you mentioned, you know, Tesla has profits, right? A lot of these SPACs are, don't even have revenue yet. Right. So will rising interest rates puncture the valuations of the SPAC market and the valuations there? I, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure. I think the broader, the broader theme of sustainability, clean energy, ESG, which since Biden got elected and we now have, you know, Secretary uh, of Energy uh, Jennifer Granholm is 
implementing is talking about an industrial policy toward uh, EVs, batteries, and also mined materials. I'm not answering your question directly. You take in MP materials. I think MP materials is being valued as an EV play um, more than it's as a commodity play. And if you look at the presentation that they have put out there during their SPAC, they, they benchmark themselves not only to lithium companies and commodity companies, but to Tesla and, and other um, ways to play the, the, the EV theme. <clears throat> so uh, Morgan Stanley just initiated coverage of MP materials. Two weeks ago, Morgan Stanley put out a new sustainability framework that talks about um, green premiums in the same way that Bill Gates has written a book about green premiums. They're, they're arguing that certain stocks that are tied to this sustainability, clean energy, green thematic should have higher multiples. So in their initiation of coverage of MP materials, they I forget the, the number, but they said it should trade at like 50 times earnings, which is three times higher because it deserves a green premium. A mining company, because it's tied to EV, is green. If that's true, if Morgan Stanley's telling the world that, they should also be telling the world that about lithium. They've been big lithium bears, but Albemarle in Goldman Sachs's framework is a sustained 50 name of Goldman Sachs. I would think that Albemarle should be a sustainable green premium name uh, and get an upgrade from Morgan Stanley. But to your, and, and Piedmont falls into that category as well. So, but to your point of uh, many other lithium companies that are not listed in the US, that are listed in Australia or listed in Canada, their market caps are one tenth you know, of what MP Materials or even Piedmont, well, maybe not one tenth, but like they're significantly discounted value um, to, to the stocks that are happening in, in the United States. And then if you look at big cap mining, if you look at BHP, Rio Tinto, these companies are paying like five, six percent dividend yields. They're they're uh, they're trading at five to seven times EBITDA. EBITDA. They're paying special dividends rather than investing in massive growth. In Rio Tinto's case, I own Rio Tinto. They paid a special dividend because they're making so much money in iron ore. Copper prices are up. Uh, um, uh, what I say, nickel prices are up. I mean, mm -hmm. so if you're worried about inflation, I would I recommend that I own a substantial uh, uh, holding of mine is an ETF called PICK. P I C K. This is not gold. This is not oil. It's mined commodities for all the reasons that I just mentioned. We talked about a few other people, uh, people like Kathy Wood at Ark Invest argue that disruptive innovation is deflationary, right? So she's less worried about inflation on balance than people like Michael Burry and Ray Dalio and, and others are, are, are worried about inflation. I, I'm more in, in that latter camp. I do worry about inflation, but uh, mining can't be disrupted, right? So if you want like a safe haven, if you're worried about rising interest rates, going to hurt Tesla's valuation or other tech stocks valuation, a safe haven 
okay, is to invest in mined commodities and pick is a broadly diversified way. And then the EV themed commodities, the graphites, the nickels, the lithiums, it's hard to play producing nickel companies. It's hard to play, like in lithium, there's at least a few um, producers. In graphite, it's almost impossible to get exposure to graphite. Why is that, uh, the, sorry to interrupt Howard, why is that the case? Why is it hard to get exposure to graphite companies? Because 100% of graphite production is in China, which is a major problem, okay? So I have all these scoreboards you mentioned, uh, Jack, or you, you, you've reached out to me because of, of these scoreboards. The graphite scoreboards are all like kind of like developers, right? Or one or two are, are producing, but, and they're, but they're brand new producers. So there's a there's a security of supply, um, you know, issue here. There's a China non-China kind of element to it. So what I'm saying is that I don't know that graphite are necessarily inflation hedge uh, investments, but they are battery themed investments, and they're trading at very low valuations. Even though some companies, we represent a company in graphite called Nouveau Mon Graphite. It's uh, listed in Canada. Its operations are in Canada, but it has a very liquid, you know, OTC ticker symbol, uh, OTC, uh, uh, you know, stock in the U.S. Uh, that stock has gone up 10 times, but it's gone from like, you know, 40 million market cap to 400 million market cap. So it's still, you know, 40% of Piedmont's valuation and what, like a, a 70 or 80% discount to MP's valuation. So, uh, and I don't think that that's necessarily an inflation play, right? It's a mm -hmm. battery themed play and it's not starting from a very high valuation. So if inflation ticks up and tech stocks fall, I don't think it should impact negatively um, the graphite names or the nickel names. And in fact, I think these the market will start to understand these the whole asset class as um, as a bit of a safe haven, right? It, it, it's been 10 years since um, mined commodities have had a boom and it's a long cycle sector. So after 10 years of a, a great you know, the 2002 to 2011 was great under the Obama stimulus in 2009 and 10. That's when the top of the market, uh, the commodity market happened from 2012 to last year. It's been a bear market on balance. So you've had disinvestment. You've had, um, you know, return money to shareholders, you know, shore up your balance sheet mentality, not invest in growth is what investors in BHP, Rio Tinto, et cetera, have, have been telling those companies. Now they're going to be telling those companies invest in growth. And when they invest in growth, they're investing in sustainability. ESG is extremely top of the, the list of, uh, of importance to, to all of these, these mining companies. So uh, to the extent that interest rate rises are a worry in the market and they worry me. I'm not exposed. I don't have a lot of tech investments. I have mostly natural resource investments. Um, I think they're going to perform extremely well because the valuations are so low. And if any sector is poised for a re-rating, like overnight, Rio Tinto could go from a six times multiple to a 10 times multiple and not be perceived as being expensive. And the assets that they own, 
world class are not replaceable, right? A mm -hmm. Lucid or a Fisk or a Hylion, you know, any one of these, you know, whiteboarded companies, you know, they're not all going to succeed, right? But if you have a world class lithium mine, you have a world class graphite mine, okay, that's scarce. Piedmont is scarce. And um, anyway, that, that, that's, that's my view on a long-winded answer to your no. inflation consideration. Not long-winded, Howard. Very detailed. And, and I thank you for uh, that detail. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the, the Nikolas uh, of the world, and that's a great transition. Um, so you also have a scoreboard of uh, the, the SPACs, the EV SPACs. Um, so you know that's QuantumScape, Luminar, Nik Nikola, Lordstown Motors. Um, anyway, these companies, as you, as you mentioned, are perhaps a little bit more exposed to interest rates because many of them are pre-profit, if not pre-revenue. Um, so what stands out to you uh, among this space? You mentioned you're not as active as you are with lithium, but you know you made a scorecard, so you are interested in a little bit. You know, what, what stands out to you? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, I'm very interested in it because, you know, the mining companies are correlated to that dynamic. And I think the, the, I think the SPAC phenomenon is uh, as strong as it is in part uh, because interest rates have been so low. Um, you know, if you're an investor, you could park your money in a SPAC, you put the money to work, you earn the fees. If you're a hedge fund, instead of sitting in cash and earning nothing, you make an investment in a SPAC, you're, you're, you're making a fee on the investment in the SPAC, that SPAC money is sitting in cash, right? But with, so I think very low interest rates have spurred SPAC issuance to this enormous uh, amount that it has. Um, and and then they have to deploy a lot of the capital, so they're putting the capital into more risky targets, right? Targets that used to be, or they're, they're venture capital funded. Um, so I did well um, with MP Materials. I bought that company after the deal announcement, uh, but it, it that stock didn't pop the way Nikola popped, right? It, you know, within a few days, you know, the stock was only at like 11, you know, not 20, you know, from a $10 price. So I did very well, right? I bought at 11 and a half. I sold a lot of it at 20. I still hold, I sold a bit more at 30. I'm still, it's now at 40. I'm holding yeah. the last remnant of it. I just Howard, didn't I, I expect. Think it, I think it breached uh, 50 today. It, it did it really? <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, you know, the, the, but there's a lot of rare earth dynamics. You know, it's not just EV thematic. There's a lot of politics going on and, and, and fear in, in the rare earths market with China. So, the, um, so that's what got me really focused. I started the SPAC scoreboard, you know, as that happened. And we now have 32 EV themed SPACs broken down into EV companies, five categories, EV, battery, LIDAR, charging, and materials. And in addition to... MP materials, uh, there's a recycling company, friends of mine, actually, Lycycle, um, you know, is going public with, with a company, with a SPAC called PDAC. That's the, that, that stock hasn't performed that well. In the battery space, one that I'm watching is Elusa merged with Freyer, 
which is a Norwegian battery company that has a Nor- Norway has hydroelectric power. So they're advertising themselves as not only, you know, super low cost battery, but also super low carbon footprint. I never saw like a, there was a cost curve in their presentation, which is not a cost curve. It's based on the carbon intensity. So batteries, you know, are perceived, you know, can be produced in a clean way. They could be produced in a, in a less clean way. So uh, this company just received, you know, uh, a, a grant of about ten or twelve million dollars from the Norwegian government. Glencore is involved, you know, wrote uh, into the uh, into the pipe. Uh, Coke Strategic Ventures wrote into the pipe. Um, you know, unlike QuantumScape, which is whatever I don't twenty thirty billion market cap, this Alusa is trading like when I entered MP Materials at eleven dollars. This is only trading at like. $10.40, right? The merger hasn't yet consummated. So your downside, if you invest with a very short-term time frame, like before the merger, your downside is only $10, right? So I, I think there's some asymmetric risk reward if you follow the story um, and get educated about it. I think it's, I think it's an interesting, it's, it's an interesting play on, on, on our scoreboard. Mm, so that's, that's uh, Elusa, which merged with Freyer. Um, that's something to look into, uh, Howard. You and, and, have and what's, a hot relevant, hand. what's also relevant about that stock, it is tied to what I do, right? They are talking about sustainably purchasing materials. So they mentioned lithium. They mentioned like Glencore's in in the pipe for that company. I imagine Glencore is probably interested to supply them cobalt, right? Mm-hmm. We're also in the EV market. There's not only complaints about uh, you know, chip shortages, but there's there there's concern about battery shortages. Battery shortages. People are going to be talking about raw material shortages as a way to play a battery shortage. Um, this there's not that many ways to play batteries, right? Directly in in a, in a pure place. So I have to do a lot more homework on Frere. To be honest, fundamentally, mm-hmm. this this is still many years away from uh, generating revenue. Um, and I need to understand the technology better, but as a, as a pure short-term trade, it can't go lower than $10 before merger consummation, right? And it's mm-hmm. at 1040 today. Um, and it's possible, you know, the, the market for SPACs, because of the interest rate worries that you talked about, had a very bad two to three last weeks. And the last time this happened in SPAC land was just before the election. October was not a good month for SPACs. And then post-Biden winning, it, it was game on again. So I'm wondering how, you know, Chairman Powell said, don't worry, we're not raising interest rates. You know, the market might be forcing his hand. Mm-hmm. But I think we could have, you know, another leg up in SPAC enthusiasm in the next kind of couple of weeks and months in a similar way you had November, December, you know, January. So my, my call on Alusa is very short term. Okay. I haven't done full okay. homework, you know, on, on the frere, uh, you know, the bottom up company perspective. You, you, just, you can't go lower than $10 before merger consummation. So that, that's behind yeah. this uh, recommendation. It's it's good you had uh, that disclaimer, Howard. And um, uh, you know, I really want to have you back on for a full uh, interview because this is the daily briefing. We could we could only we only have so much time. Um, I, I specifically want to ask you about the SPAC world, where you know, A Rod has a SPAC, Shaq has a SPAC, Paul Ryan has a SPAC. 
it's a pretty uh, wild and crazy world. So, you know, I'm looking at your scorecard. You're a pro. You've been in this space. Uh, you, you can separate the wheat from the chaff and you're willing to take risks and your, your clients take that risk too. But, you know, I'm, I'm worried about someone who uh, maybe, maybe I, want, I want to ask you if you have worries about, um, you know, sort of the, the retail investor. But we're, we're going to have to leave that for another day. Um, Howard, it was wonderful having you on The Daily Briefing. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Jack, thanks for having me and uh, very happy to come back and talk about those and many other issues. Thanks. Talk soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.